uh, within weeks after the initial transplant, and he developed um, a pneumonia in his single lung with evidence of fungal infection at the anastomotic site, since uh, he was obviously going to die of the fungal disease uh, within a week or so. Hello, and welcome to the Breathe Easy Fellow podcast, hosted by myself, Dominic Pepper. In this podcast, we ask an expert clinician, teacher, or researcher to share their insights about career opportunities in the fields of critical care, pulmonary medicine, or sleep medicine. And for today, we go to Baltimore to discuss lung transplantation. To me, it's not a it's not a job. It's a it's a um, it's um, it's something I just love to do, and it's uh, it's a passion. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, Aldo Iacono. I'm a physician. Um, I I'm an advanced lung physician and transplant physician at University of Maryland Medical Center, and um, I've been in the field of lung transplantation and advanced lung disease since 1992 uh, when I finished my fellowship at um, University of Pittsburgh, and prior to that I was at uh, State University of New York at Stony Brook, and uh, prior to that at Downstate, uh, and I graduated from University of Bologna. You've had a very long career uh, in lung transplant uh, medicine, and in 2015, you were awarded the Hamish Osborne Professorship at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Um, can you share with us how you met Hamish Osborne uh, and how he impacted your life? We, he was referred from INOVA Center for uh, end-stage IPF on high-flow oxygen at Vapotherm. Apparently, they were not able to get him a lung in, in Virginia, and he became a, um, uh, a patient that we would uh, we thought we should double list because of the urgency needed to transplant him. And uh, I went over and visited uh, Mr. Osborne at Inova in the ICU. He was on high-flow oxygen, and uh, I actually stepped on his oxygen cord and prevented him from getting oxygen for a little while, and he got upset at me. But uh, we... we uh, <laughs> We uh, we became friends, and uh, within 24 to 48 hours, we had a lung for him and transplanted him. Uh, he wow, developed that's pretty quick. He developed mucor, um, and uh, we actually had to uh, mucor from the donor must have contracted mucor from inhaling um, uh, debris on the ground during the uh, terminal event, and um, we had to retransplant him and. Uh, he was. Uh, he became extremely high risk. Everyone said it would be impossible to retransplant a person for, with mucor, and for that reason, he was forever grateful. And he's donated um, substantial amounts to the University of Maryland to the transplant program, and and to and he's rewarded my efforts and Dr. Bartley Griffiths as well. But uh, I, I consider it a a global award for the University of Maryland in doing such a great job in in saving his life. Unfortunately, he recently expired of uh, post-transplant lymphoma, but uh, he lived um, three good quality years, essentially, without being in the hospital. Yeah, he must have been uh, really grateful. In one of the 
uh, interviews, he describes it as a gift of life that he received um, from the patients that donated uh, their lungs to him. Can you tell us a bit about um, the high-risk nature of his uh, transplants? And because most patients don't get a retransplant, so he must have had a rather unique uh, circumstance. Uh, within weeks after the initial transplant, and he developed um, a pneumonia in his single lung with evidence of fungal infection at the anastomotic site. And um, because uh, because we, we felt it was an acute infection that was localized, we felt that uh, we were uh, somewhat obliged to, to help him since uh, he was obviously going to die of the fungal disease uh, within a week or so. Um, of receiving the first transplant, so uh, we we had a discussion with our group and we relisted him and um, and uh, we we um, we got two lungs for him and uh, he lived. Uh, we were able to cure the mucor by surgical resection essentially and inhaled antibiotics for the most part, and uh, he went on to live an uneventful of uh, great quality of life, living in Florida essentially for years. Um, up until he developed PTLD. You can do all kinds of amazing things if you put your mind your mind to it. And when you look at uh, when you look at the life expectancy of patients with end stage IPF, it's in a matter of days. And we per, we transplant them and, and we give them uh, years of life um, after after the transplant, which do, may not seem like much. But uh, it's a it's a substantial amount of time, considering that uh, they lead a very poor quality of life in the hospital, and the life expectancy with IPF is uh, is only days or months. So I think it's a, it's an underutilized uh, technique, and um, I, I think we should be doing more of these if we can get the cost down a bit. Now you're considered an expert in the field, but back in the early days, I mean, as, as a resident or a fellow, what made you get into lung transplants and what made you uh, passionate about it and pursue it as a career? Uh, I, Dominique, I enjoyed critical care. And um, in the, in the uh, early, early 90s, um, late 80s, um, uh, the, the AIDS epidemic was... Uh, was full blown. There was no treatment for um, for those patients. They usually died even of pneumocystis pneumonia or uh, or other types of pneumonias, um, respiratory disease. And uh, the unit was all the, the ICUs were usually full of um, full of uh, patients um, with end stage lung disease, predominantly COPD. I don't think we really recognized IPF as being an entity back then. We probably thought it was more of a pneumonia um, of unknown etiology, and uh, it 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 got uh, it it got to the point where I became excited about trying to save these patients' lives because they all they all died, and um, you know I had personal experience with people I knew and friends and relatives who would die of lung disease for a variety of reasons. And uh, at that point in time, I said, "Well, there, you know, you know, perhaps this lung transplant thing is not such a bad idea, and we should, we should, uh, I should learn more about it." So, um, so because of because of the poor prognosis, many of these patients, and that really hasn't changed to, to a big extent. The AIDS thing has, but 
Um, End-stage lung disease remains a real burden for, for patients in society. You mentioned that um, the prognosis hasn't really changed. Um, the, the median prognosis is uh, 50% will be alive at five years. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, we're we're trying to change that. I've been I've, <laughs> I've been trying. We've all been trying. Uh, so that's a good point. The, the you know the the prognosis with IPF is bad. You know it's it's a couple of years after the diagnosis. The the outcomes after transplant are about fifty percent survival at five years. So uh, not too much better. Uh, a little bit better. Um, but um, hopefully, uh, hopefully we can we, we can make some gains. Uh, there has been improvements, as you know, um, in the post-operative uh, outcomes, so that the surgical technique is improved, and the early ICU care is certainly improved to that, and, and this certainly affects Kaplan-Meier curves. But when you look at long-term outcomes, um, they're still poor, and most patients die of either. Um, um, uh, chronic rejection or complications associated with their immunosuppressive regimen and the toxicity, that is cancer or infection. So it's about 30% um, who die of, um, of complications of immunosuppression, renal failure, or, uh, or um, being overly immunosuppressed and in infections. 30% die of chronic rejection. And um, cancer is also a major, uh, a major cause of death a large number of patients. So um, so there's, there's a lot of room to improve, and, and I think we will as time goes on. I think what we need to do is um, is cohort data, um, like like the IPF Foundation is doing, and try to get a, data, a, you know, a larger database from multiple larger centers in the United States and Europe and assess outcomes and diverse practices and try to... Uh, Come up with regimens that are more successful. Um, that would be a step forward. And then there are some novel treatments that we're using that um, may may enable us to um, lessen the need for systemic immunosuppression. I'm hoping. You're actively involved in a number of research projects um, looking to improve outcomes. Would you like to describe some of them to us? Sure. Yes. So, so as our center, um, uh, probably uh, most interestingly, and I've been working on this project for uh, for about twenty twenty five years now, is um, we're very interested in in locally immunosuppressing the lung using aerosol immunosuppressant aerosol immunosuppression, and the drug uh, that um, I have the most experience with is uh, aerosolized cyclosporin. And there's been um, a number of uh, studies that uh, probably over 20 that have been published regarding aerosolized cyclosporin, uh, most of which have shown promise, uh, some, of, some of which are in phase three trials at the moment. And uh, the, the idea is that uh, by inhaling uh, an, an aerosol immunosuppressant, uh, we're in a really good position with the uh, lung because it's in communication with the external environment after the transplant, and we can directly deposit uh, pharmaceutical products into the lung uh, with uh, relatively low absorption from the lung parenchyma into the uh, into the body, so that we can give um, potentially higher doses. So this this holds promise, and uh, and uh, I'm actually going to Germany uh, on November 13th 
to uh, finalize uh, a phase three study using a liposomal aerosol of cyclosporin. Uh, this phase three study will be done in, in the United States and, um, and in Europe, and hopefully will be a pivotal trial to get approval of this uh, treatment for, um, for BOSS. Are you involved in a lot of clinical research and teaching responsibilities? I see you've mentored over 50 um, uh, clinicians who have gone on to do great things. How do you manage to balance your responsibilities on a day-to-day basis? To me, it's not a it's not a job. It's a it's a um, it's um, a, uh, it's something I just love to do. And it's uh, it's a passion. If you really love what you're doing, the day goes quickly. Fellows or residents who are thinking of pursuing lung transplants as a career, what advice would you give them in terms of the skills that they need to acquire or the attributes that they need to have? Um, the the, uh, the the passion for learning new things and um, being able to deal with failure if if they're able to if if they're able to really want to make a difference. And they and they and they they're able to deal with the um, the emotional difficulties of not always succeeding in a high risk patient population, but really able. But the reward is that sometimes you do succeed and you can make a real impact in the field. Contact the centers. I mean, don't if you really like the field, don't take no for an answer. You know, contact. That's what I did. I contacted the center and said I'd like to start working there and. Don't look for reasons why you can't do it. Look for reasons why you can. If you develop those kind of relationships and help others, um, all kinds of doors open up, both in the hospital, by their administration, uh, outside of the hospital, and um, even um, even within the, the local government of the city and the state. In the next uh, 10 to 15 years, where do you think the field of lung transplantation is going to go, and what should... Um uh, uh, fellows or the, uh, those in training expect to see in the next 10 to 15 years? Well, well I th- I, I'm sure that, that there'll be a subspecialty, Dominique, in trans- lung transplant, just like there is in heart transplant. So there'll, there'll certainly be a, a specialty in advanced lung disease, um, as I believe there is in cardiac and, and lung transplant, as there is in heart transplant. There'll be, there'll be specialists in a board um, because of the nature of the uh, the nature of the field, and because of the need for the for the expertise, and because it's going to be more common. If you look at um, if you look at uh, just reviewing our data, if you look at outcomes with IPF, once patients are diagnosed and sent for transplant, they usually are, expire within a year. Uh, most of our patients live four or five years, so we're at times quadrupling the life expectancy, even with all the faults lung transplant has now. So if we uh, if we can come up with uh, um, some therapeutic alternatives that are unique to the lung, there's not one drug that's, as far as I know, that's approved for lung transplant alone. All these drugs have been approved for kidney and heart and liver. If we can come up with a couple of new therapies um, that improve outcomes, and the sky's the limit, and, and patients are going to live with lung transplants for decades. Oh, definitely. Well, I really appreciate speaking to you. Thank you, Dr. Iacona, for joining me. 
and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.